0: I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I'm so pleased to have you here with me tonight. This evening, we will be continuing with Anne of Green Gables, but before we begin, take a moment here to recenter and relax. Start with a nice, big stretch, really drawing your attention to the muscles in your legs and back. Let them know that they can rest after a hard day of work. To clear your mind, let's take a deep breath in. Collecting all your thoughts and worries from the day. And when you exhale, I want you to audibly sigh them away. In our last episode, Marilla was walking home one night, expecting Anne to be back preparing tea. However, when she got home, The house was cold and dark. Anne was nowhere to be seen. The supper dishes were washed up before Marilla went to the east gable to light a candle and found Anne hiding in her bed. She had been there the whole evening. Anne came out from under the covers to reveal a mass of greenish-orange hair. A peddler had come to the house that afternoon, and Anne had used her pocket money to purchase a black hair dye that evidently had not worked as desired. Days of washing and scrubbing did not resolve the mess. The only resolution was to cut it all off. Anne was devastated but resigned to her fate. Later that summer, the girls were play-acting by the lake with Mr. Barry's little boat and retelling a medieval story called Elaine, by which a lady dies, and her body is floated down the river to be met on the shore by her distraught family. Anne, being the only one brave enough, lay down but as she set sail on the current, a hole began to flood the bottom of the boat. In a panic, she grabbed hold of an old pile under the bridge and scrambled up it while the boat disappeared. Sometime later, as Anne was beginning to think she couldn't hold on any longer, Gilbert Blythe came rowing past He rescued Anne and sculled them both to the shore, whereby he asked if they could ever be friends. Anne refused him, but later very much wished she hadn't. Tonight, we join Anne early one September evening, so just try to relax and listen to the sound of my voice. Chapter 29 An Epoch in Anne's Life Anne was bringing the cows home from the back pasture by way of Lover's Lane. It was a September evening, and all the gaps and clearings in the woods were brimmed up with ruby sunset light. Here and there, the lane was splashed with it, but for the most part, it was already quite shadowy beneath the maples, and the spaces under the firs were filled with a clear, violet, dusk-like, airy wine. The winds were out in their tops, and there is no sweeter music on earth than that which the wind makes in the fir trees at evening. The cows swung placidly down the lane, and Anne followed them dreamily, repeating aloud the battle canto from Marmion, which had also been part of their English course the preceding winter, and which Miss Stacy had made them learn off by heart, and exulting in its rushing lines and the clash of spears in its imagery. When she came to the lines, the stubborn spearsmen still made good their dark impenetrable wood, she stopped in ecstasy to shut her eyes that she might the better fancy herself one of that heroic ring. When she opened them again, it was to behold Diana coming through the gate that led into the barry field and looking so important that Anne instantly divined there was news to be told. But betray too eager curiosity, she would not. Isn't this evening just like a purple dream, Diana? She said, It makes me so glad to be alive. In the mornings, I always think the mornings are best. But when evening comes, I think it's lovelier still. It's a very fine evening, said Diana. But oh, I have such news, Anne. Guess. You can have three guesses. Charlotte Gillis is going to be married in the church after all and Mrs. Allen wants us to decorate it. Guess Anne. No, said Diana. Charlotte's beau won't agree to that, because nobody has ever been married in the church yet, and he thinks it would seem too much like a funeral. It's too mean, because it would be such fun. Guess again, "'Jane's mother is going to let her have a birthday party,' Anne said. Diana shook her head, her black eyes dancing with merriment. "'I can't think what it can be,' said Anne in despair. "'Unless it's that moody Spurgeon McPherson saw you home from prayer meeting last night. Did he?' "'I should think not.' said Diana indignantly. I wouldn't be likely to boast of it if he did, the horrid creature. I knew you couldn't guess it. Mother had a letter from Aunt Josephine today, and Aunt Josephine wants you and me to go to town next Tuesday and stop with her there for the exhibition. Oh, Diana, whispered Anne finding it necessary to lean up against a maple tree for support. "'Do you really mean it? But I'm afraid Marilla won't let me go. She will say that she can't encourage gadding about. That's what she said last week when Jane invited me to go with them in their double-seated buggy to the American concert at the White Sands Hotel. I wanted to go.' but Marilla said I'd be better at home learning my lessons, and so would Jane. I was bitterly disappointed, Diana. I felt so heartbroken that I couldn't say my prayers when I went to bed. But I repented of that and got up in the middle of the night and said them. "'I'll tell you,' said Diana. "'We'll get Mother to ask Marilla.' She'll be more likely to let you go then, and if she does, we'll have the time of our lives, Anne. I've never been to an exhibition, and it's so aggravating to hear the other girls talking about their trips. Jane and Ruby have been twice, and they're going again this year. I'm not going to think about it at all until I know whether I can go or not said Anne resolutely. If I did, and then was disappointed, it would be more than I could bear. But in case I do go, I'm very glad my new coat will be ready by that time. Marilla didn't think I needed a new coat. She said my old one would do very well for another winter, and that I ought to be satisfied with having a new dress. The dress is very pretty, Diana." navy blue and made so fashionably. Marilla always makes my dresses fashionably now, because she says she doesn't intend to have Matthew going to Mrs. Lind to make them. I'm so glad. It's ever so much easier to be good if your clothes are fashionable. At least it's easier for me I suppose it doesn't make such a difference to naturally good people. But Matthew said, I must have a new coat. So Marilla brought a lovely piece of blue broadcloth, and it's being made by a real dressmaker over at Carmody. It's to be done Saturday night, and I'm trying not to imagine myself walking up the church aisle on Sunday, in my new suit and cap, because I'm afraid it isn't right to imagine such things, but it just slips into my mind in spite of me. My cap is so pretty. Matthew bought it for me the day we were over at Carmody. It's one of those little blue velvet ones that are all the rage, with gold cord and tassels, Your new hat is elegant, Diana, and so becoming. When I saw you come to church last Sunday, my heart swelled with pride to think you were my dearest friend. Do you suppose it's wrong for us to think so much about our clothes? Marilla says it is very sinful. But it is such an interesting subject, isn't it? Marilla agreed to let Anne go to town, and it was arranged that Mr. Barry should take the girls in on the following Tuesday. As Charlottetown was 30 miles away and Mr. Barry wished to go and return the same day, it was necessary to make a very early start. But Anne counted it all joy and was up before sunrise on Tuesday morning. A glance from her window assured her that the day would be fine, for the eastern sky behind the firs of the haunted wood was all silvery and cloudless. Through the gap in the trees, a light was shining in the western gable of Orchard Slope, a token that Diana was also up. Anne was dressed by the time Matthew had the fire on and had the breakfast ready when Marilla came down, but for her own part was too much excited to eat. After breakfast, the jaunty new cap and jacket were donned and Anne hastened over the brook and up through the first orchard slope. Mr. Barry and Diana were waiting for her, and they were soon on the road. It was a long drive, but Anne and Diana enjoyed every minute of it. It was delightful to rattle along over the moist roads in the early red sunlight that was creeping across the shorn harvest fields. The air was fresh and crisp, And a little smoke blue mist curled through the valleys and floated off from the hills. Sometimes the road went through woods where maples were beginning to hang out scarlet banners. Sometimes it crossed rivers on bridges that made Anne's flesh cringe with the old half delightful fear. Sometimes it wove along a harbour shore and passed by a little cluster of weather-grey fishing huts. Again, it mounted to hills whence a faraway sweep of curving upland or misty blue sky could be seen. But wherever it went, there was much of interest to discuss, it was almost noon when they reached town and found their way to Beechwood. It was quite a fine old mansion, set back from the street in a seclusion of green elms and branching beeches. Miss Barry met them at the door with a twinkle in her sharp black eyes. So… You've come to see me at last, you Anne girl, she said. Mercy, child, how you have grown. You're taller than I am, I declare, and you're ever so much better looking than you used to be, too. But I dare say you know that without being told. Indeed, I didn't, said Anne radiantly. I know I'm not so freckled as I used to be, so I've much to be thankful for, but I really hadn't dared to hope there was any other improvement. I'm so glad you think there is, Miss Barry." Miss Barry's house was furnished with great magnificence, as Anne told Marilla afterward. The two little country girls were rather abashed by the splendor of the parlor where Miss Barry left them when she went to see about dinner. "'Isn't it just like a palace?' whispered Diana. "'I never was in Aunt Josephine's house before, and I'd no idea it was so grand. I just wish Julia Bell could see this.' She puts on such airs about her mother's parlor. "'Velvet carpet,' sighed Anne luxuriously, "'and silk curtains. I've dreamed of such things, Diana. But do you know, I don't believe I feel very comfortable with them after all. There are so many things in this room, and all so splendid that there is no scope for imagination.' That is one consolation when you are poor. There are so many more things you can imagine about. Their sojourn in town was something that Anne and Diana dated from for years. From first to last, it was crowded with delights. On Wednesday, Miss Barry took them to the exhibition grounds and kept them there all day. It was splendid," Anne related to Marilla later on. I never imagined anything so interesting. I don't really know which department was the most interesting. I think I liked the horses and the flowers and the fancy work best. Josie Pye took first prize for knitted lace. I was real glad she did. And I was glad that I felt glad, for it shows I'm improving, don't you think, Marilla, when I can rejoice in Josie's success? Mr. Harmon Andrews took second prize for Gravenstein apples, and Mr. Bell took first prize for a pig. Diana said she thought it was ridiculous for a Sunday school superintendent to take a prize in pigs. I don't see why. Do you? She said she would always think of it after this when he was praying so solemnly. Clara Louise McPherson took a prize for painting and Mrs. Lynde got first prize for homemade butter and cheese. So Avonlea was pretty well represented, wasn't it? Mrs. Lynde was there that day and I never knew how much I really liked her until I saw a familiar face among all those strangers. There were thousands of people there, Marilla. It made me feel dreadfully insignificant. And Miss Barry took us up to the grandstand to see the horse races. Mrs. Lynde wouldn't go. She said horse racing was an abomination and she, being a church member, thought it her bounden duty to set a good example by staying away. But there were so many there, I don't believe Mrs. Lynn's absence would ever be noticed. I don't think, though, that I ought to go very often to horse races, because they are awfully fascinating. Diana got so excited that she offered to bet me 10 cents that the red horse would win. I didn't believe he would, but I refused to bet because I wanted to tell Mrs. Allen all about everything, and I felt sure it wouldn't do to tell her that. It's always wrong to do anything you can't tell the minister's wife. It's as good as an extra conscience to have a minister's wife for your friend. And I was very glad I didn't bet, because the red horse did win, and I would have lost 10 cents. So, you see, that virtue was its own reward. We saw a man go up in a balloon. I'd love to go up in a balloon, Marilla. It would be simply thrilling. And we saw a man selling fortunes. You paid him 10 cents. And a little bird picked out your fortune for you. Miss Barry gave Diana and me ten cents each to have our fortunes told. Mine was that I would marry a man who was very wealthy, and I would go across water to live. I looked carefully at all the men I saw after that, but I didn't care much for any of them. And anyhow, I suppose it's too early to be looking out for him yet. Oh, it was a never-to-be-forgotten day, Marilla. I was so tired I couldn't sleep at night. Miss Barry put us in the spare room according to promise. It was an elegant room, Marilla. But somehow, sleeping in a spare room isn't what I used to think it was. That's the worst of growing up and I'm beginning to realize it. The things you wanted so much when you were a child don't seem half so wonderful when you get them. Thursday, the girls had a drive in the park, and in the evening, Miss Barry took them to a concert in the Academy of Music, where a noted prima donna was to sing. To Anne, The evening was a glittering vision of delight. Oh, Marilla, it was beyond description, she said. I was so excited I couldn't even talk, so you may know what it was like. I just sat in enraptured silence. Madame Selitsky was perfectly beautiful, And wore white satin and diamonds, but when she began to sing, I never thought about anything else. Oh, I can't tell you how I felt, but it seemed to me that it could never be hard to be good anymore. I felt like I do when I look up to the stars. Tears came into my eyes, but oh, they were such happy tears. I was so sorry when it was all over, and I told Miss Barry I didn't see how I was ever to return to common life again. She said she thought if we went over to the restaurant across the street and had ice cream, it might help me. That sounded so prosiac, but to my surprise, I found it true. The ice cream was delicious, Marilla. And it was so lovely and dissipated to be sitting there eating it at 11 o'clock at night. Diana said she believed she was born for city life. Miss Barry asked me what my opinion was, but I just said I would have to think it over very seriously before I could tell her what I really thought. So I thought it over after I went to bed. That's the best time to think things out. And I came to the conclusion, Marilla, that I wasn't born for city life, and that I was glad of it. It's nice to be eating ice cream at brilliant restaurants at 11 o'clock at night once in a while, but as a regular thing, I'd rather be in the East Gable at 11, sound asleep, but kind of knowing, even in my sleep, that the stars were shining outside and that the wind was blowing in the firs across the brook. I told Miss Barry so at breakfast the next morning, and she laughed. Miss Barry generally laughed at anything I said, even when I said the most solemn things. I don't think I liked it, Marilla, because I wasn't trying to be funny, but she is a most hospitable lady and treated us royally. Friday brought going home time, and Mr. Barry drove in for the girls. Well, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves, said Miss Barry as she bade them goodbye. Indeed we have, said Diana. And you, Anne girl? Miss Barry asked. I've enjoyed every minute of the time, said Anne, throwing her arms impulsively about the old woman's neck and kissing her wrinkled cheek. Diana would never have dared to do such a thing, and felt rather aghast at Anne's freedom. But Miss Barry was pleased and she stood on her veranda and watched the buggy out of sight. Then she went back into her big house with a sigh. It seemed very lonely, lacking those fresh, young lives. Miss Barry was a rather selfish old lady, if the truth must be told, and had never cared much for anybody but herself. She valued people, only as they were of service to her or amused her. Anne had amused her and consequently stood high in the old lady's good graces. But Mrs. Barry found herself thinking less about Anne's quaint speeches than of her fresh enthusiasms, her transparent emotions, her little winning ways. And the sweetness of her eyes and lips. I thought Marilla Cuthbert was an old fool when I heard she'd adopted a girl out of an orphanage, she said to herself. But I guess she didn't make much of a mistake after all. If I'd a child like Anne in the house all the time, I'd be a better and happier woman. Anne and Diana found the drive home as pleasant as the drive-in, pleasanter, indeed, since there was the delightful consciousness of home waiting at the end of it. It was sunset when they passed through white sands and turned into the shore road. Beyond, the Avonlea Hills came out darkly against the saffron sky, Behind them, the moon was rising out of the sea that grew all radiant and transfigured in her light. Every little cove along the curving road was a marvel of dancing ripples. The waves broke with a soft swish on the rocks below them, and the tang of the sea was in the strong, fresh air. But it's good to be alive and to be going home, breathed Anne. When she crossed the log bridge over the brook, the kitchen light of green gables winked her a friendly welcome back, and through the open door shone the hearth fire, sending out its warm red glow thwart the chilly autumn night. Anne ran blithely up the hill and into the kitchen, where a hot supper was waiting on the table. "'So you've got back?' said Marilla, folding up her knitting. "'Yes, and oh, it's so good to be back,' said Anne joyously. I could kiss everything.' even to the clock. Marilla, a broiled chicken. You don't mean to say you cooked that for me. Yes, I did, said Marilla. I thought you'd be hungry after such a drive and need something real appetizing. Hurry and take off your things, and we'll have supper as soon as Matthew comes in. I'm glad you've got back, I must say. Been fearful lonesome here without you, and I never put in four longer days. After supper, Anne sat before the fire between Matthew and Marilla and gave them a full account of her visit. I've had a splendid time, she concluded happily, and I feel that it marks an epoch in my life. But the best of it all? was the coming home. Chapter 30 The Queen's Class is Organized Marilla laid her knitting on her lap and leaned back in her chair. Her eyes were tired, and she thought vaguely that she must see about having her glasses changed the next time she went to town for her eyes had grown very tired very often of late. It was nearly dark, for the full November twilight had fallen around green gables, and the only light in the kitchen came from the dancing red flames in the stove. Anne was curled up on the hearth rug, gazing into that joyous glow where the sunshine of a hundred summers was being distilled from the maple cordwood. She had been reading, but her book had slipped to the floor, and now she was dreaming with a smile on her parted lips. Glittering castles in Spain were shaping themselves out of the mists and rainbows of her lively fancy. Adventures, wonderful and enthralling, were happening in her cloudland. Adventures that always turned out triumphantly and never involved her in scrapes like those of actual life. Marilla looked at her with a tenderness that would never have been suffered to reveal itself, in any clearer light than that soft, mingling, of fireshine and shadow. The lesson of a love that should display itself easily in spoken word and open look was one that Marilla could never learn. But she had learned to love this slim, grey-eyed girl with an affection all the deeper and stronger from its very undemonstrativeness. Her love made her afraid of being unduly indulgent, indeed. She had an uneasy feeling that it was rather sinful to set one's heart so intensely on any human creature as she had set hers on Anne, and perhaps she formed a sort of unconscious penance for this by being stricter and more critical than if the girl had been less dear to her. Certainly, Anne herself had no idea how Marilla loved her. She sometimes thought wistfully that Marilla was very hard to please and distinctly lacking in sympathy and understanding, but she always checked the thought reproachfully, remembering what she owed to Marilla Anne, said Marilla abruptly. Miss Stacy was here this afternoon when you were out with Diana. Anne came back from her other world with a start and a sigh. Was she? Oh, I'm so sorry I wasn't in. Why didn't you call me, Marilla? Diana and I were only over in the haunted wood. It's lovely in the woods now all the little wood things, the ferns, the satin leaves, the crackerberries have gone to sleep, just as if someone had tucked them away until spring under a blanket of leaves. I think it was a little grey fairy with a rainbow scarf that came tiptoeing along the last moonlit night and did it. Diana wouldn't say much about that, though. Diana has never forgotten the scolding her mother gave her about imagining ghosts into the haunted wood. It had a very bad effect on Diana's imagination. It blighted it. Mrs. Lynn says Myrtle Bell is a blighted being. I asked Ruby Gillis why Myrtle was blighted, and Ruby said... She guessed it was because her young man had gone back on her. Ruby Gillis thinks of nothing but young men, the older she gets, the worse it is. Young men are all very well in their place, but it doesn't do to drag them into everything, does it? Diana and I are thinking seriously of promising each other that we will never marry but be nice old maids and live together forever. Diana hasn't quite made up her mind, though, because she thinks perhaps it would be nobler to marry some wild, dashing, wicked young man and reform him. Diana and I talk a great deal about serious subjects now, you know. We feel that we are so much older than we used to be, it isn't becoming to talk of childish matters. It's such a solemn thing to be almost 14, Marilla. Miss Stacy took all us girls who were in our teens down to the brook last Wednesday and talked to us about it. She said we couldn't be too careful what habits we formed and what ideals we acquired in our teens because by the time we were 20 our characters would be developed and the foundation laid for our whole future life. And she said if the foundation was shaky, we could never build anything really worthwhile on it. Diana and I talked the matter over coming home from school. We felt extremely solemn, Marilla, and we decided we would try to be very careful indeed and form respectable habits and learn all we could and be as sensible as possible, so that by the time we were 20, our characters would be properly developed. It's perfectly appalling to think of being 20, Marilla. sounds so fearfully old and grown up. But why was Miss Stacy here this afternoon? This is what I want to tell you, Anne, if you'll ever give me a chance to get a word in edgewise, said Marilla. She was talking about you. About me? Anne looked rather scared. Then she flushed and exclaimed, Oh, I know what she was saying. I meant to tell you, Marilla. Honestly, I did, but I forgot. Miss Stacy caught me reading Ben-Hur in school yesterday afternoon, when I should have been studying my Canadian history. Jane Andrews lent it to me. I was reading it at dinner hour, and I'd just got to the chariot race when school went in. I was simply wild to know how it turned out, although I felt sure Ben-Hur must win "'cause it wouldn't be poetical justice if he didn't. So I spread the history open on my desk lid, then tucked Ben-Hur between the desk and my knee. I just looked as if I was studying Canadian history, you know, while all the while I was reveling in Ben-Hur. I was so interested in it that I never noticed Miss Stacy coming down the aisle, until all at once I just looked up, and there she was, looking down on me, so reproachful-like. Can't tell you how ashamed I felt, Marilla, especially when I heard Josie Pye giggling. Miss Stacy took Ben-Hur away. She never said a word then. She kept me in at recess and talked to me. She said I'd done very wrong in two respects. First, I was wasting time I ought to have put on my studies, and secondly, I was deceiving my teacher in trying to make it appear I was reading a history when it was a storybook instead. I had never realized until that moment, Marilla, that what I was doing was deceitful. I was shocked. I cried bitterly and asked Miss Stacy to forgive me, and I'd never do such a thing again. And I offered to do penance by never so much as looking at Ben-Hur for a whole week, not even to see how the chariot race turned out. But Miss Stacy said she wouldn't require that, and she forgave me freely. So I think it wasn't very kind of her to come up here to talk to you about it after all. Miss Stacy never mentioned such a thing to me, Anne, and it's only your guilty conscience that's the matter with you, said Marilla. You have no business to be taking storybooks to school. You read too many novels anyhow. When I was a girl, I wasn't so much as allowed to look at a novel. I only read it on weekdays, Anne protested. And I never read any book now unless either Miss Stacy or Mrs. Allen thinks it's a proper book for a girl 13 and three quarters to read. Miss Stacy made me promise that. She found me reading a book one day called The Lurid Mystery of the Haunted Hall. as one Ruby Gillis had lent me and oh, Marilla, it was so fascinating and creepy just curdled the blood in my veins. But Miss Stacy said it was a very silly, unwholesome book, and she asked me not to read any more of it or any like it. I didn't mind promising not to read any more like it, but it was agonizing to give that book back without knowing how it turned out. But my love for Miss Stacy stood the test, and I did. It's really wonderful, Marilla, what you can do when you're truly anxious to please a certain person. Well, I guess I'll light the lamp and get to work, said Marilla. I see plainly that you don't want to hear what Miss Stacy had to say. You're more interested in the sound of your own tongue than in anything else. Oh, indeed, Marilla, I do want to hear it said Anne contritely. I won't say another word, not one. I know I talk too much, but I'm really trying to overcome it. And although I say far too much, if you only knew how many things I want to say and don't, you'd give me some credit for it. Please tell me, Marilla. Well, Miss Stacy wants to organize a class among her advanced students who mean to study for the entrance examination into Queens, Marilla said. She intends to give them extra lessons for an hour after school. She came to ask Matthew and me if you would like to join it. What do you think about it yourself, Anne? Would you like to go to Queens and pass for a teacher? Oh, Marilla. Anne straightened to her knees and clasped her hands. It's been the dream of my life. That is, for the last six months, ever since Ruby and Jane began to talk of studying for the entrance. But I didn't say anything about it, because I supposed it would be perfectly useless. I'd love to be a teacher, But won't it be dreadfully expensive? Mr. Andrew says it cost him $150 to put Prissy through, and Prissy wasn't a dunce in geometry. I guess you needn't worry about that part of it," said Marilla. When Matthew and I took you to bring you up, we resolved we would do the best we could for you and give you a good education. I believe a girl being fitted to earn her own living, whether she ever has to or not. You'll always have a home at Green Gables, as long as Matthew and I are here. But nobody knows what is going to happen in this uncertain world. It's just as well to be prepared. So you can join the Queen's class if you like, Anne. Oh, Marilla, thank you. Anne flung her arms about Marilla's waist and looked up earnestly into her face. I'm extremely grateful to you and Matthew, and I'll study as hard as I can and do my very best to be a credit to you. I warn you not to expect much in geometry, but I think I can hold my own in anything else if I work hard. I dare say you'll get along well enough. Miss Stacy says you are bright and diligent. Not for worlds would Marilla have told Anne just what Miss Stacy had said about her. That would have been to pamper vanity. You needn't rush into any extreme of killing yourself over your books. There is no hurry. You won't be ready to try the entrance for a year and a half yet, it's well to begin in time and be thoroughly grounded, Miss Stacy says. I shall take more interest than ever in my studies now, said Anne blissfully, because I have a purpose in life. Mr. Allen says everybody should have a purpose in life and pursue it faithfully, only he says we must first make sure that it is a worthy purpose. I would call it a worthy purpose to want to be a teacher like Miss Stacy, wouldn't you, Marilla? I think it's a very noble profession." Thank you.